0: Hello, it's Matt. I want to take a few minutes and talk about a conversation that I was a part of not too long ago that I think reflects something all of us deal with to some degree or another as Christians. Uh, I had a couple of friends I was talking with and there's a mild disagreement. Uh, one said we have to do whatever is necessary to protect our kids we can't hand them over to the world which is true I mean, and he went on to say though Jesus said to not love the world or the things that are in the world and therefore we have to protect not only our kids but ourselves now of course we know Jesus said this by inspiring the Apostle John in John chapter two, which we'll get to in a second. But all those statements are right; doesn't seem any contradiction. But again, the the, the broader context of the conversation with what uh, of the conversation was: how do we go about implementing this? Because the the rejoinder, uh, the other friend countered by saying, "Yes, this is true, but we can't just hide." away from everything. How will the world ever know about Jesus if the Christians run away and hold themselves up in their own homes or in their church and they don't get out. And they went back and forth and it was interesting though because again I think this, is, this conversation could be found in a lot of places. There's no argument that there's problems. The world is not a place you want your kids to adopt all of its ways. Both positions, though, make good points and have a significant place in the history of the church. Now, I'm not going to get into the church history as much in talking about this. We'll just stick with Scripture. We read in Scripture of men who at times separated themselves, and often it was God's call for them to separate themselves in a sense from others we see this with Abraham who at God's command left his pagan people and went on the road as a pilgrim in search of the land that God would show him which we know would be the promised land so Abraham left because God told him to leave get away from your family even at one point when he was fighting after he was victorious In battle to rescue his nephew Lot, he would not take any of the spoils from the king of Sodom because he said, I don't want it to be said that my blessings came from someone who's not who's not attached to the true God. We also see Moses who is exiled from Egypt for 40 years. He spent early part of his life in Egypt the first several decades of his life in, in Egypt. But then, after he tried to begin the, the deliverance process by killing an Egyptian who was abusing an Israelite, uh, he was exiled. So he spent there for 40 years, spent time with God, with sheep, and with his in-laws. That's a long time. <laughs> but he definitely left the greatest society in the known world at the time. Uh, and Hebrews says that he, w- he was willing to suffer affliction with the people of God in st- rather than enjoying the pleasures of sin for a season. David had to flee for a time. He was forced to flee. Saul was trying to kill him. So David had to leave and he was on the run for quite a while until eventually Saul was killed. Leave, that means he had left a lot of his family, he had left his friends, all of it in order to preserve his life. We see also this same thing with Elijah, the prophet. He was in the desert for a good chunk of his uh, the, the, the latter part of his life. Ezekiel, if you read the book of Ezekiel, he stayed in his house quite a bit. He would come out and he would prophesy and say things that would raise the hair off of the people uh, and then he would go back. And we see it with other prophets as well. So there's, there's a regular tradition, but it's not just in the Old Testament. We see before his earthly ministry began in earnest, Jesus went to the wilderness for 40 days to be tested. You say, well, that's not very long. Well, no, it's not, but he still went away. And we know that it was was not just of his own accord, his father directed him. We're told in one place that it was the spirit who did that, and then in another place we're actually told that it was the devil. And you say, well, how can it be both? Well, the Lord uses means. So in your own life, I know you've seen examples of bad things that happen, but God is still directing. He is overseeing what happens even in the midst of those bad things. And then the example that is often neglected, but after Paul's conversion, he says in Galatians that he went to the desert for three years where he learned and was taught and understood things about God's Word. He had most of the Old Testament memorized anyway as a Pharisee of Pharisees, so he would have have known the Scriptures better than any number of us put together. He had this already but he was able to learn how it all comes together in Christ. But that was only by being in the desert. On the other hand, though, we see, again, let's look at Abraham. Abraham, when he would go to a place, he would engage with the monarchs. And some of those monarchs that he comes in contact with, I mean, he didn't have much choice because he's a very wealthy man, perhaps the richest man in that monarch's territory. And when you're wealthy and you move into a new place, uh, the powers that be want to get to know you. They want to know, are you for me? Are you against me? Are you going to be helping me? Are you going to lead an uprising against me? And, of course, Abraham maintained a good relationship with them. And we, we see that even though he messed up, he at times was afraid, and he used his wife, and you know that story. If not, you know, you can look it up. It's in the book of Genesis But Abraham was still a part of and interacted with the kings and the kingdoms of this world. Solomon, boy, Solomon had no problem loving the world. And we could say, especially when it comes to women, uh, he took this principle too far. He loved the women of the world, uh, probably princesses from all over the known world. And that was part of his downfall. But still, he is an ex- he's an example of someone. He, he, even if he doesn't uh, take out the part about him giving in to having all the wives and concubines, you read the book of Ecclesiastes and, and all the things that he talks about that he acquired. And he learned the wisdom of botany, of, of horsemanship, of just everything. History, philosophy, he understood it. He was a man of the world. Daniel served as an advisor to both Babylonian and Persian empires. Daniel didn't withdraw. Of course, then, there's the Apostle Paul. Paul traveled the known world to preach, and he preached to all kinds of people. He preached to Greeks, to Romans, to Jews, to Persians, to barbarians. He preached everywhere and to every one. So, what do we do with this? We have examples of those who were in the world. So, some are in the world, some flee the world. Wh- what are we supposed to do? Well, you look at scripture, well, what are the commands to God's people? And it, it doesn't always clear it up because you, you come to a place like uh, 1 John chapter 2 and I've already mentioned this but in 1 John 2 John's talking about our calling and return to it verse 15 love not the world neither the things that are in the world for if any man love the world the love of the father is not in him if all that is in the world for excuse me for all that is in the world the lust of the flesh the lust of the eyes the pride of life is not of the father but is of the world and the world passes away and the lust thereof but he that does the will of God abides forever little children it is the last time and as ye have heard that antichrist shall come even now there are many antichrists whereby we know that it is the last time so he goes from talking about the danger of the world and how we should be aware of that he goes immediately to talking about the most one of the most applicable dangers is that of those who oppose Christ he said many antichrists plural Have come, but though you have John warning us to not be a part of the world or its system, you have Paul in First Corinthians chapter 8. He says, concerning that verse 4, concerning those things. Offer, that are offered to, in sacrifice to idols we know that an idol is nothing in the world and that there is none other god but one for though there are many that are called gods whether in heaven or earth there be as there be gods many and lords many but to us there is but one God the father of whom are all things and we in him and one lord Jesus Christ by whom are all things and we by him howbeit there is not in every man that knowledge, for some with conscience of the idol unto this hour eat it as a thing offered unto an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. But meat commendeth us not to God, for neither if we eat are we the better, neither if we eat not are we the worst. So, Paul is saying in this area that that's disputable, you have some people who were willing to eat what... Many would call what certainly a lot of the Jewish Christians would have called worldly food. Food that's meat that's offered to idols. They say, we can't eat that. That's of the world. And their desire would be to, to withdraw from that. But Paul is saying it's not actually a sin. Some people, their conscience can't handle it. That's okay. Other people, their conscience can But we know that God reigns over all. So so we have to be careful here. Just as a side note, what some people call worldly, others may not see it as worldly. And unless we have clear guidance, clear explanation from Scripture, we can't demand other people conform to our standards. An example of this would be something like... How you practice honoring the Lord's Day, honoring the Sabbath? Well, some people practice it in a very strict way. But most people are much more lax. And this debate goes a long way back in church history. And there's always the, the, those who are more lax in it sometimes will condemn those who are more strict as being prudes as being legalistic and those who are more strict in their uh, adherence to honoring the Sabbath look on the the lax ones as as being worldly. With the case of someone like Lot, Lot is called a righteous man by Peter and thereby the Holy Spirit calls him righteous Lot. But Lot chose, when he had a choice of where he was going to live, he chose to live in Sodom. Because it was a better land. That is, it was a land more likely to make him wealthy. But Sodom was a despicable place. It was a horrid place. It was a place that I mean, the closest I can think of for us today be something like San Francisco, you know, the story. And I've never been to San Francisco, so it might be better than, you know, the, the people that I hear is all one way. So I'm sure that I know that there are good people who live there, but by and large, uh, it has a negative reputation. And we're told that it vexed Lot's soul to live there, and we know that it did significant damage what uh, we know that when he left, his wife, when he was warned to leave, his wife turned around, looked back at it, became a pillar of salt. He fled to a cave, and then we know of the, the, the negative actions that his daughters committed and the consequences there. So Lot was a man of the world, a righteous man, but still a man of the world in the worst sense He was likely urbane and appreciative of the blessings. Lot knew what a good land looked like. At least what what, what the attributes of a good land were. And it could have destroyed his soul. So, what do we do? A key, I think, to understanding what every Christian is called to do can be found in the example of Noah. Noah didn't withdraw at least not exactly. We know that that it was it was, it was a bad place. The, the the world was a bad place when Noah was was around. I mean there was Noah and there was his family, you know, his his ancestors and, and some of whom, cuz they lived Eight nine hundred years back then, he had you know father, grandfather, and so on who were likely still around, but Noah was called by God to build an ark, and he did. He went about his father's business, building an ark, and the ark was a place where God's people could go for protection. Now, it wasn't just open, only to Noah anyone who would have submitted to God could have received protection. Anyone who would bow the knee to Yahweh, the true God, could have had this. We're told that Noah was a preacher of righteousness. So, no matter how this, or what this looked like, we don't know know, whether it was his proclamation. We don't know if it was Uh, just his his example in building the ark in front of neighbors who obviously looked at it and would scoff and who knows, it could have been worse than that even his actions would have been viewed as crazy his words certainly would be viewed as crazy but Noah is an example of someone who was in the world he didn't Hide himself as a preacher of righteousness. He proclaimed what is true. He was in the world, but not of it. He prepared a place for his family while not withdrawing. At least, he didn't withdraw until the flood of judgment comes. That's something we should pay attention to. Jesus, as another example, Jesus engaged. With God's covenant people, his ministry was primarily to God's people, to, to the Jews. That's who we see him talking with almost all the time. That there were times when Gentiles would come to him, and two particular examples when they come to him. One time, you have the lady who asked for her daughter to be healed, and then Jesus said, compares her to a dog, <laughs> and you know he said that that this is not something that I'm called to do and she said well, even the dogs go for the crumbs under their master's table so Jesus commends her faith the other time we see this is when you have a centurion who asked Jesus to heal his servant and of course the famous example Jesus said uh, I'll come to your house he said no no need for you to come to my house Uh, I, too, am a man under authority. I say to this one, go when he goes, and to another, come when he comes. And so just speak the word, and Jesus commands his faith as well. So Jesus, though, those two examples aside, the woman at the well who's a Samaritan aside, he's especially focused on God's people. But even, even then, Jesus would still at times go aside we read of him going aside often to pray uh, his most famous prayer we see john 17 that's actually where we get the whole father i pray that you would that you would not take them out of the world but you would keep them from the evil one so so this is his desire for the people for his people for us then as christians our call is to manage this seeming paradox we must not give ourselves to the system to the ways of the world yet we must not hold back from shining from being God's instruments in the world if we lean too hard in one direction or another if we lean too hard in the direction of being in the world we actually will start to adopt the techniques of the world and its DNA its, its, its spiritual way of doing things Its outlook will infect us and will pervade our sight. On the other hand, if we make it our priority to abstain from the world, to keep ourselves away, we risk becoming insular, becoming arrogant, and looking down our nose at all of those unwashed, unsanctified, dirty, grimy, perverse, demonic creatures out there, and yes, there are demonic creatures out there, but it's not the neighbor who lives next door who plays his music too loud. Our warfare is against principalities, powers, the rules of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. We must strike the balance. Of Noah, who went about doing the work of preparing a place, preparing the ark, preparing the place of protection for God's people, while also proclaiming and being and, and demonstrating God's righteousness, God's faithfulness, God's goodness, and mercy to the world. So we have to be first against the world, that is the world system. We must be against the world in order to be for the world. We're called to be for the world. But unless we are first against it in the right way, we cannot be for it.